Hi, I'm Chris Lovejoy. I am the Global Security and Resiliency Practice Leader for Kindrel. Hi, I'm Rhonda Childress. I'm a Kendrel Fellow, and I am the Chief Innovation Officer for Chris Lovejoy, which means I get to do weird and wonderful things. I'm Catherine Speglia, and this is Well Technically, the tech podcast where women do the explaining. Hi, Chris and Rhonda. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy to have you guys here. Okay, so we are going to be talking a little bit about enterprise security and where the two of you kind of see the most glaring gaps still existing in in the conversations and strategies that are out there. Um, But before we do that, as all my viewers know at this point, or I should say listeners, that I got to ask, What is an example of a time in which being a woman has empowered you? And in this case, we're going to start with Chris. You know, that is a really hard question. I'll be honest with you. Um, It's the hardest one to ask. (laughs) I I know. I would have to say, okay, I'm going to be, I'm known for being very cynical, but one of the, uh, one of the things that does happen in the security industry because it is very uh, light on women. Um, as you know, the um, the percentage, I think the most recent percentage is about 20, 25% women. And of that, um, of that 25%, uh, less than 10% are managers of that less than 1% are executives of that less than a fraction of 1% are have achieved like C-suite or board level positions. Mm-hmm. So it is a little bit like being a unicorn as a woman in this industry. So I would have to say very cynically, being a woman doesn't necessarily empower one <laughs> to succeed in this industry. Um, and to be called, totally, again, very cynical, I do think, and, and I've got, there's a dual edge to the answer I'm about to give you. You know, one of the things that has been empowering for me is because I am a woman and because it is such a rare thing to be a senior executive as a woman in the cybersecurity space, you tend to get um, a lot of uh, attention, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I'm very I'm blessed in so much as I get asked to do a lot of speeches on the subject and I get, you know, and get awards and that's all awesome. Now, on one hand, I hate the fact that I'm getting it because I'm a woman, right? I hate that. I, I wish I could just say I'm a person and I'm getting the award because I merit this award. Um, but on the other hand, I also look at it and say, you know what? There is a problem in this industry today with empowering women to get to that next level. There is a very, very big opt-out rate, what we're seeing kind of mid-career for women in the security field. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, I, you know, I I use the empowerment that I am given by others by virtue of both my role and my gender. Um, I I try to use that to actually point out what I think the issues are and try to help resolve them. Because, you know, when I started, you know, almost 30 years ago, it was a very, very different environment. And oh boy, we've made a lot of progress, but we are not there yet. We have a pretty big mountain to climb. And so, you know, I would say what's been empowering for me is giving me a platform in which I can actually begin to tackle some of those problems. 
Yeah. Thank you for that answer. And I think I've said this before on the podcast in the past, but I think your answer really plays into what I was trying to do with this podcast, which is highlight women, but not because they're women, um, but because they have uh, industry knowledge and technical knowledge to share that that is useful and interesting to everybody. Rhonda, what about you? It, it's very much similar along the lines that Chris presented. Um, to me, I think empowerment comes to me by what I see the people that I've empowered to do mm-hmm. these yeah. things. Um, you know, I created a lot of first when I was with IBM and now Kendrill. But my feeling is, is when I walk through that door, I need to make sure that not only the door stays open, but we take the wall down and that other people can come after us and don't have to struggle and figure this out and have to do these things. So my empowerment comes when I see my protege succeed or the people that I've helped succeed and the fact that they are working very hard to fulfill my request of them, that you have to turn around, you have to reach back to five people. So we we try to build what we call an army of people that can do that and break those barriers down and to make it more palatable for, for women to do these things. And, and that's where my empowerment comes from is by helping other people get through these processes, procedures, whatever that they have to do and encouraging uh, one of my big things is stem stem events by encouraging young people not just females but all of them to do science technology engineering and math and by doing it in such a way that it it shows them that you can do all kinds of different things with science technology engineering and math and that you need those skills to survive in today's world yeah that's great it's also what you were saying about empowering those who come after you, quote unquote, is uh, really how progress is made, right? It's not one person being able to achieve something. It's that person being able to lead the way for others to do the same thing. So yeah, I think that that's really important. And I understand why that, that would feel so empowering. I don't often ask my guests to go too deep into what they do at the companies that they're at, but I thought it might be a good idea since I have two of you on here to kind of just uh, to get a sense of what both of your roles are at the company and maybe how you work together in those roles before we kind of jump into into the tech stuff. So, uh, Chris, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, you know, Kindrel, uh, for those of you who don't know you know, what a Kindrel is, um, we are a new company. We're a startup, um, but one of the biggest startups in the world. So we got about 90,000 people. Um, and this is a startup that was born out of IBM. So about it was almost exactly a year ago, um, IBM was split into essentially two pieces. Um, one was more products focused. The other was more uh, managed services, services focused. We're part, we are the managed services services business. Now within Kindrel, there are five core business lines. Um, one of those five core business lines is the security and resiliency business line. The others are networking and edge. We have data and AI. We have core um, enterprise and Z uh, services. We have cloud services and, oh, I'm sorry, and uh, a desktop, I'm sorry, there's six, um, and uh, workplace uh, transformation services. Um, so we are, we are one of Sorry, we are one of those those six um, business lines. Mm-hmm. So my job, I am the practice leader, and so my responsibility is to um, help sort of 
create the strategy and then provide oversight for all activities associated with this particular business line, whether that be um, what you know Rhonda is doing, you know, in and around innovating new capabilities for us to uh, growth, go to market, marketing, et cetera, to um, managing, you know, delivery of our capabilities through managed services or professional services. Um, and then we also have another kind of mission as part of that, which is more less uh, sort of uh, pure business focused, um, and it's more focused on um, the internal Kindrel mission, which is around ensuring that our commercial infrastructure, the in infrastructure in which we deliver our services to our clients, ensuring that is in of itself secure. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a um, dual-hatted role. One is kind of looking out at the market, building and delivering services. The other is really looking at our internal environment, ensuring that we are compliant with the policies, regulations, et cetera, standards, and auditing our um, stance across the organization um, in order to ensure that security like a seatbelt is actually operating the way in which we expect it to. All right, Rhonda, what do you do? I, I have I have a couple of interesting roles. Um, one of the first one is that Chris touched upon as, as the chief innovation officer. I get to look at things that are or could be considered out there. How are we going to use quantum computing? Or worse, how are the bad guys going to use quantum computing? And what do we do to stay ahead of what the bad guys are going to do with quantum computing and, or how they could misuse quantum computing? Um, things like the metaverse. You know, first time I heard this, I'm thinking, you know, I'm in a DC comic book or something. Someone said, Rhonda, how do we use the metaverse? And I was like, oh, and at that point I felt very old. But um, luckily, one of one of my guys is very well versed in the metaverse. You know, how do we do use something like the metaverse to teach the lessons of what could happen? How do we use it to do um uh, things like cyber range exercises. So we can use these things in new and unique ways that, that no one has ever thought of using these types of technologies. So we can get our point across on, on what we're trying to do. And then I'm, I'm lucky or unlucky, I'll say it like that, is, is I lead the group that do cyber recoveries. Mm -hmm. um, so, <laughs> and I think Chris will touch, we'll touch on that a little later in the podcast, but it's, it's interesting working with clients who have had a cyber event mm. and how do we help them recover from that cyber event? And, and what do we do to help them prepare to recover from those cyber events? I, I really enjoy the prepare part more than the we didn't prepare part because then I'm there for several weeks. I'm sleeping on floors a lot of times <laughs> with the client trying to make sure things get done. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a great role and it's great working with these clients and helping them get back because there's something tangible at the end. You've gotten the client back up and working and help them recover. Yeah, that is, that all sounds very cool. I mean, very, you know, beyond me, but it sounds very cool. And actually, you know, uh, I like that when you first heard about the metaverse, you're like, oh, this is so cool. We can use this to to improve security. Whereas I feel like I would assume that if you were in security or in cybersecurity and you heard about the metaverse, you'd be like, oh no, this is like a perfect, <laughs> what's going to go wrong? So it's nice to know you had a positive reaction to it instead of I what try, I, I 
I try to stay positive when, when these new things come up, you, you do have a dual reaction, you know, oh crap, <laughs> they're going to use this. What can go wrong? And, oh, interesting. How can we leverage this with, with, with um, folks to, to make it a teachable moment? Right. You know, those kinds of things. Cause you, you never know, we can't do what we used to do 30 years ago to try to explain things. Yeah. We have to move forward with the progress. Yeah, totally. My next question is about kind of what you both think is the most glaring gap that still exists in enterprise security, but I want to hear, you can even talk to each other about it. I want to know if you both agree on where some of these biggest gaps are, or if you have differing views on that. Um, so I don't know, Chris, if you want to start where you kind of think those gaps exist in the most pressing way, and then, and Rhonda, don't even wait for me to, you know, say anything, just feel free to respond. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Happy to jump in. Um, and I'm hoping, I think we're pretty well aligned, but we'll see. This will, will this will be a good test, right? I think that we're kind of in a, in a unique position now post COVID. Um, and I've had the opportunity to talk about this a bit, but I'll kind of reiterate because I think it's important. Um, you know, during the COVID period, there was a lot of security innovation that, or I'm sorry, a lot of innovation that occurred. And that innovation occurred largely with no control in and around that innovation. So for existential purposes, people were just throwing technology out there to enable new ways of working, new ways of working with clients, with employees, et cetera, et cetera. And as I said, no seatbelts is part of that technology. And so what that means is the uh, attack surface has increased. The number of things that are out there on our networks that can be attacked and subverted has increased increased just enormous numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, And moreover, if you sort of double click on that, what we were finding is that, you know, the the attackers, they recognize that, that a lot of this technology occurred and they've been focusing on that technology. They've been focusing on particular pockets, like on the technology vendors themselves. So what we don't recognize is that over that COVID period, a lot of the technology providers on which we rely today were subverted themselves. Mm -hmm. And malicious code or backdoors was introduced into the technology that we are today buying and implementing within our organizations. And so we've got a lot of, you know, sort of spots of presence of the actors within our environments that we're just not aware of. And that's one really big issue that I am worried about. The second big issue that I'm really worried about, and this all these all, things all tie together, is that the regulatory environment, so the regulators who are recognizing this, have become a bit panicked. And so what we're seeing is almost on a country by country, sector by sector basis, is the introduction of new rules uh, guarding uh, the way in which we have to protect our data, not just personally identifiable information, but corporate data, strategic data, data around control systems that operate our critical infrastructure. We're seeing new regulations in and around the use of technology and the export of technology. Now that's creating a lot of complexity and that is increasing cost and therefore is increasing our risk because CISOs not only have to deal with the expanded uh, threat attack surface, but they were also having to deal with this onslaught of new regulations that is driving them to do peculiar things. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Now, the third piece of that is not only do you have sort of the technology and the regulatory environments changing, but now all of a sudden, you know, we've got a situation where um, the that the the industry itself, which is has largely the security industry, the products industry, has been triggered by sort of a combination of crisis and compliance. That's why people buy is there's something they experienced or there's been some new regulation. The industry itself has been incredibly fragmented. And so you've got a lot of vendors out there that have very, very narrow product offerings that they're trying to introduce into the market. And in order to get mindshare, sometimes they expand upon their value proposition a little bit beyond the bounds of what the technology can actually do. So you've got this perfect storm now, post COVID, just as we're going into a recession, where you've got a lot more, a bigger attack surface, you've got more regulation, you've got a ton of fragmentation, and now you've got CISOs that not only are trying to deal with all this stuff, but they're being told you can't hire and you can't spend money. Mm-hmm. Right, so it is a a really interesting time for us right now uh, to be in this in this industry. I think, Chris, if if you add on to that, um, the lack of being able to hire security skills or knowledgeable, competent, seasoned security professionals um, adds adds to this even more. Um, as as you try to to hire, when we've when we've talked to people. Um, you know, typically they have three or four job offers in hand when we're interviewing them and it becomes a very competitive situation. Um, it's just it's just really hard to find those those seasoned professionals, because when you build your teams, you have to build them of new people that you need to bring up. But you have to have the seasoned veterans to support them and, and show them the way so they don't start making the same mistakes that we've done in the past and repeat those those mistakes. And, and so, you know, to add on to what Chris said, hiring seasoned security professionals is just darned near impossible right now. Um, and you're going to pay premium prices for those folks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you do that and then you start looking at what Chris said, where there's niche players, you then start getting technology sprawl along with that, those niche players. So you've got a little piece that does this and a little piece that does this and a little piece that does this. And you look at it and you're like, how am I going to clean this up? How, what am I going to do? I don't have the people to do it. And, and now I've acquired all this technology. How do I, how do we deal with this? And those are, I think if you put those together, the most glaring gaps, and then you look at what people assumed. So when we went into COVID, if you remember, and, and you look at what happened during COVID, all the remote access solutions that were being used were suddenly that everybody thought was sacrosanct, you know, was not, nothing was ever going to happen. All the ones, those were the ones that started to get hit with breaches. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, the assumptions that everybody's made too, that everything is bulletproof need to be revisited. I like the way you put it, the technology sprawl. And that really leads nicely into my next question here, because you guys really laid out how this is a, a perfect storm uh, for kind of cybersecurity disasters just waiting mm-hmm. to happen. So let's talk about this sprawl a little bit and maybe why the unification and cohesion of architectures and of technologies is so important when it comes to better securing these these enterprise networks. Chris, do you want to start? 
Brand and I are going to tag team a little bit on this. Let me let me focus on the yeah. sort of the governance and mm-hmm. structural piece on, of this, um, because I think what's really people are recognizing is a couple things. One is you can't protect everything. Or you can't afford to protect everything. Mm-hmm. It's just it isn't going to work. And, you know, my argument is, yes, shouldn't want to protect everything either, because not all technologies are made equal. (laughs) It's just the way it is. I mean, some technologies are running your business critical services. Some are not. Um, You know, some data is important. Some is not. We can't afford to protect everything in the same way. So we have to recognize that the, you know, different risk profiles drive different levels of activity. That's number one. Number two is we also have to recognize that um, even if you try strive for 100% protection, you're never going to get there. The, the bad guys are going to find a way in, t- in the door. So um, the, the thing that has to happen is you have to, what we say, prepare to recover. Um, this is ensuring that you have good recovery mechanisms in place so that if there is a, a negative cyber-related event, whether that be ransomware, denial of service, whatever the case may be, you can bring yourself back from that. So that recognition that you need more of a risk orientation and you need to be able to um, not only sort of protect yourself against the risk, but recover, Mm -hmm. um, that is leading to a kind of a new, I'd say it's a, it's a new philosophy, a new approach, a new organizational structure, which really combines security plus business continuity plus disaster recovery under one mantle, which um, or you, which we're calling cyber resilience right now. And you're beginning to see, again, going back to regulation, you're seeing some of the regulations, particularly out of Europe, really driving um, enterprises to think more holistically within this context of cyber resilience. So in the financial services institutions, we're beginning to see cyber resilience officers. In the other industries, we might not necessarily see the officers, but we're seeing a lot more discussion about how do you align those functions of security, business continuity, disaster recovery? What are the frameworks? What are the control libraries? How do you monitor? How do you measure? How do you recover? All of those things are being talked about in one paragraph. That's very exciting, actually, and I think really, really long overdue. Um, But that's more from a governance and a management architecture. Now I'm going to turn it over to my friend Rhonda, who's going to take it, I think, the last mile. Uh, Which is what? Which mile did you want? (laughs) The last 100 miles. 100 last 100 miles. Well, architecturally, it it becomes somewhat different. We're we're used to um, assuming the castle, what I call the castle moat mentality. You know, all your enterprise is, is within that moat and I've got these concentric moats and I have made myself impenetrable and nothing will ever happen. And now that we've seen, that's not the case. These people have learned how to tunnel under the moats or, or worse, to be carried in by us as we enter the moats. Um, on your laptops, um, a lot of these things are happening. So you have to step back architecturally. As Chris said, you can't, not everything is created equal, right? And for me to be able to protect an enterprise, we have to recognize I would have to be right every single time. And the bad guy only has to be right one time to get in there and to cause damage as part of this. So architecturally, you've got to start thinking differently on how things are going. There's a concept of zero trust. Okay. But everything 
cannot, you know, you may not be able to, to afford to have everything be zero trust. So you have to say, what are my most important pieces of architecture that I have to um, preserve? You know, if in the event of a cyber industry, uh, event, do I know what, what we call our minimally viable company is? What do I have to have up to make money? And so that causes you to step back, not architecturally, but procedurally, and to rethink how you're approaching things a little differently. So this is where the combination of disaster recovery, we take principles from disaster recovery, we take principles from security, we take principles from business continuity, and we sort of mash them together to say, you know, do you understand what your minimally viable company is? Have you preserved it? Um, zero trust. Every server does not need to talk to every server, for God's sakes. You're not at a cocktail party. You know, you're in a segregated party over here where you have to be in a private room by yourself. You can talk to each other, but you're not going to talk to the general population of things. So we architecturally and procedurally have started rethinking how we do this when we do cyber resiliency. And it, it's, 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 again, one of those ways we're picking things up and tipping it on its head. And, and trying to force people to think differently, not the normal business continuity, DR, security protections, but they all have to come together for us to be able to do this. I mean, it sounds like a very realistic way of approaching cybersecurity in, in modern time. <laughs> it, it is, but when you, and Chris says this a lot, when you move people's cheese, everybody is not lined up with you when that cheese moves. Uh, you know, it's hard for some people to realize they have to change and think differently. And it's difficult. It is, it is very difficult. Change is difficult. And we're, we're especially when you're taking three, what used to be very towered, events and now saying, hi, you all are one big, large, happy, blended family. It's difficult. If it's difficult to, to get people to understand why this is maybe the right path forward, you know, if I have people who are decision makers at enterprises listening to this episode, what is it that you would say to them about you know, can maybe what are some of the specific recovery mechanisms or, or policies that you're even talking about? How do you make it more real life for them and less scary, maybe? You know, I think I think Rhonda, in the beginning when she was introducing herself and she was talking about the fact that she's, you know, looking at quantum from two different vantage points, right? which is what's the positive and what's the negative. You know, that is, that's the fundamental change that needs to happen in this industry. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, I've, I have, again, been, Rhonda and I have both been in this industry, like we're Methuselah for this industry. Um, and what we can say pretty scientifically is that most CISOs not only don't like their cheese moved, they don't like to be told they can fail. Right. They they tend to like to think that they can achieve that 100 percent protection. And by God, nobody's going to come in and tell them that they can't. And that's again, that is really hard for people to recognize that we want you to drop that attitude and we want you to think more innovatively. We want you to think first about the business. What is it that you're trying to where are you trying to get to? What are the risks? And then how do you reasonably, pragmatically address those risks, not in a way that makes it so expensive that you can't do business, but that you can actually progress forward, 
reasonably. Now, that does require people in seats that have the ability to think, as Rhonda's thinking, both innovatively as well as protectively, that kind of that duality. Mm-hmm. Now, my, my personal belief is that a lot of, again, going back to the reg changes, we're getting some changes from the top. And when I say top, I mean top, top, top. You know, there is, um, we assume that there is going to be a more proactive obligation on behalf of the boards of directors to begin to attest, just as they are in and around secure, um, Sarbanes-Oxley, around the financial controls, they are ultimately going to be obligated to attest in and around the cybersecurity controls. Okay. What is What is happening, because there is that indication this is going to happen, is that the supervisory boards as well as the management boards are beginning to engage in questions about am i am i doing okay do i have enough security where am i spending on security and as they embark on these discussions to get to that answer what they're doing is they're recognizing that challenge that they've got internally mm-hmm. that they're not really thinking about it from a pragmatic risk perspective so i do think that there is going to be a change tops down and is going to require the CISOs to be more um, savvy in the world of understanding what is that minimum um, viable uh, business. And if the CISO doesn't understand what that is today, they're going to need to do it really quickly. And so I would hope that, you know, the one lesson that someone would take out of this is, you know, go back and ask yourself, do you really know what that makes the business tick? Mm-hmm. And if it were to go down tomorrow, how would you bring it back? And what's the SLA around that? And how do you how do you inform people within the organization as to what those requirements are? And how do you get them to move on it? It's not easier said than done, but that's kind of the thinking that has to take place. And it becomes it becomes very hard if you've not thought through what the minimally viable company is. I've done over a hundred ransomware cases working with clients to recover. And um, when you, the first thing you go is what is your priority to recover? What are your priority applications that makes you and drives you to earn profits and loss, which unless you're a manufacturing company keeps you out of the newspaper because, you know, not everybody wants to have everybody know that, that something has happened. And a lot of times we have to sit down with those CISOs and make some, you know, have some very tough conversations. You know, only one person is going to call the cadence. That person needs to understand what your minimally viable company is, because if not, we have chaos. Because everybody who has an application in your corporation is going to think, obviously, theirs is the best, right? <laughs> that it has to be up because, you know, I'm important. And, and it's not necessarily the truth. Okay, and no one wants to learn that you're like not number one in in this 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 business that that's being run. So those conversations become tough, and then the conversations then proceed from there on. You know, do you understand what you even have industry? You know, in your inventory and where things are, and what does what does this look like and that look like, and all these kinds of things? Because technically, you have to have a lot of information for us to be able to come in and help you bring yourself back from an incident. And it's difficult for these guys. And again, like I said, it's very hard to have to tell somebody, you know, you're really not number one, you might be number 20. So you need to go over here for a little while till we get one through 19 finished and then we'll come back to you because you're number 20. You know, people don't like to hear that. So, you know, these are hard decisions that CISOs have to, to make. 
And I agree with Chris, they've got to be allowed to fail. Now, I'm not talking fail spectacularly. <laughs> However, you will, it's not if you will be breached, it's when, and it's how well you contain that breach and then how well you recover from that breach. Right. And I don't think if, if a CISO gets breached, that should be an automatic, you know, um, to borrow a phrase from somebody, we all know you're fired. It's going to happen, but it's, you know, did they react well? Did they contain it well? And were they able to get back up and in business quickly? Those are the new things we need to be thinking about. Not, oh my God, you got breached and, you know, you need to go work someplace else because these guys are good. They're state sponsored. This is not war games where, you know, the movie from way back when with Matthew Broderick, where they're, they're kids, these are adults who it is their business to do this. They are paid to think how to do this and how to cause these incidents to happen. Thank you both so much for this conversation. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, indeed. Anytime. Well Technically is an Arden Media production. For advertising inquiries, contact Danny Miller at dmiller at ardenmedia.com.